Take your girlie to the movies If you can't make love at home There's no little brother there who always squeals You can do an awful lot in seven reels Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 196. My name is Terry Frost and this time around we're doing a couple of movies that have political aspects to them as well as aspects of social change. The first one is Anthony Mann's 1964 Roman epic, The Fall of the Roman Empire, starring Stephen Boyd, Sophia Loren and Christopher Plummer. Then we go back to 1960 for Elia Kazan's one of his least um, credited movies and, and least recognised movies, Wild River, starring Montgomery Clift, Lee Remick and Joe Van Fleet. Very different movies from very different times, time periods at least for the films. But they do have that in common. They've both got political aspects to it and they are both about social change. So sit back, I'm going to get the contact details out of the way and the show will begin. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a podcast of classic movie appreciation. It appears every two weeks, and the only rule is that the movies have to be more than 20 years old. Probably not going to do genre films, because genre films go over to the Martian Drive-In podcast, but nonetheless, that's the rule, more than 20 years old. You can contact and offer feedback several ways. The first one is the new feedback email address, feedbackpaleo, P-A-L-E-O, at gmail.com you can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook and leave feedback there and get updates or you can go to paleo-cinema.blogspot.com and listen to the episodes there and put feedback through this podcast may contain adult materials so please don't listen to it when children are around or when you have your granny over Hey, how's everybody doing? The weather here is warming up we've had a couple of nice days today it's pretty shitty but... They're warming up, and I'm quite pleased by that. Um, I've got a long weekend because I've got Monday off. I've decided to take an annual leave day off on Monday because my in-laws, known as the Outlaws, are flying off to England for um, a couple of months. It's my mother-in-law and its first trip overseas, and uh, my father-in-law, Peter, hasn't been back to the UK since he came to Australia about the time the Beatles were getting big. So it's a big trip for them, and I wish them bon voyage, and I hope they have a wonderful time and bring me something back. But uh, because of that, and we're dropping, you know, we're seeing them off at the airport late at night tonight, Sunday. Uh, I've got tomorrow off, so it's going to be kind of fun to have that. We're living in interesting times, apart from that, in Australia. There's the plebiscite for um, marriage equality, which is turning nasty. There's already been some very kind of homophobic propaganda put out regarding this and it's um yeah it's not the way we want this to be we want the government to just do what the people want give us marriage equality in fact somebody i knew a number of years ago and um and with him on facebook friends went to new zealand to get married to his now husband because of those um the delay in getting marriage equality here in Australia. Apparently it was a very nice wedding. I've seen some of the photos. And it reminded me that 30 years ago, I went to a hand fasting ceremony for a gay couple when I was living in Canberra. 30 years ago, people had the urge, people who were same-sex attracted, had the urge to um, get married in some way. And hand fasting ceremonies were one of the ways they did that. These two gents were pagan. And it was a very lovely ceremony, but it's still not 
um, a legally sanctified marriage, which is sad and horrible. And I hope that that changes soon. But conservative forces are gaining strength in the world. And that disheartens me. I'll tell you, honestly, it disheartens me at times. And by the way, I'm, I'm linking this into the movies I'm going to talk about this time around. Change can be hard for people. It can be very hard. People want the world to be their comfort zone where it never has been and never will be. The comfort zones we have are our friends and our families, the people we love, the people who love us, and the things we do for and with them. To expect a whole country to be a comfort zone is unrealistic. To expect a whole planet to be a comfort zone is unrealistic. Things are going to change. And, yeah, they, they can be challenging at times. They're all through my life. There have been social and political and technological changes that are challenging. But the, the kind of thing I've come to terms with and the, the approach I take to this stuff is learn what's in it for me. If a if social change comes along, there's always a plus and a minus. So I'm going to look at what's different for me. As far as marriage equality, um, people I care about and people who are friends and people I respect will be happier. I may get invited to a few more weddings, which is never a bad thing because I like going to weddings. I enjoy the the pageantry and the optimism of a wedding. It's that kind of casting your fate to the winds aspect to weddings that I really enjoy so that you know any social change you can always find an upside and the thing is to focus your attention on that upside where you can and um, both of these movies I'm talking about this time around are about social change the fall of the Roman Empire is about um, and the way this is the way it's phrased I'm not talking about historical accuracy because I'm not well knowledge I don't have enough knowledge of the history of the Roman Empire to say how historically accurate the movie is, so I'm going to take it in its own terms. It's about an opportunity lost that started the decay of an empire. And Wild River, the second movie I'm talking about, Elie Kazan's Wild River, is about a change designed to save lives that has a profound impact on the lives of some people. And so, you know, those things are, are very topical subjects and they're very of this time. So, that's one of the things about um, classic films. Some of them have resonances that kind of match up with certain social resonances we have in our modern times, even if the movie was made a long time ago. And they're the movies that, when we see them for the first time now, mean something to us. They're, they're important to us. They're something, they say something that we want to hear and something that challenges us challenges us as well and i think both of these movies do so let's do them in reverse chronological order and we'll start with the fall of the roman empire directed by anthony mann and starring a very large cast including stephen boyd sophia loren omar sharif who gets about nine lines james mason alec guinness mel ferrer john ireland um, and a bunch of other uh, very fine characters, including Eric Porter and Douglas Wilmer. And here is the very bombastic and over-the-top trailer for the movie. Rome, at the height 
height of its grandeur and its glory. A civilization so powerful it could never be conquered from without. Yet it found the seeds of its destruction within itself. The fall of the Roman Empire. Not just two or three, but 14 stunning recreations of the empire to which all roads lead. Rome's mighty fortresses and encampments on the northern Danubian border. The great forum of ancient Rome, completely recreated so that its original beauty may startle the modern world. The temple of Jupiter, where the Caesars became gods. The palestra, where an army of gladiators was trained. The vast chamber of the Roman Senate, where an empire's future hung in the balance. The mighty assembly of all the armies of the Roman Empire, from Britannia to Africa, from Spain to the gates of Persia, to pay homage to the greatest Caesar of them all. Governors, consuls, princes, we've had to fight long wars. Your burdens have been great. But we come now to the end of the road. Here, within our reach, golden centuries of peace. The fall of the Roman Empire. Not just three or four, but all the known emotions. A drama of ambition and greed, of treachery and violence, and the intimate story of a daughter of a Caesar whose love was sacrificed for the good and the glory of the Roman Empire. I'm not as strong as I thought I was. I've not learned to live without you. There is no life for either of us apart, Lucilla. Stand up! Rid yourself of this man who has imperiled the life of the Empire! The fall of the Roman Empire, not just four or five, but countless thrills. The savage ambush by the barbarians from the forests of the north. A duel to the death with javelins between the Caesar who was a god and the only man who dared defy him. relentless retribution against cowards who retreated in battle. The battle between the death-sworn Persian hordes and the human wall of Romans. The duel of the chariots, a breathtaking clash between fearless men, the most exciting thrill the camera has ever captured. Okay, so this was a 1964 movie filmed entirely in Spain, uh, maybe with a little bit in Italy, but mostly in Spain. Now, given that the fall of the Roman Empire actually took four or five hundred years, this is just the story of what started the ball rolling for the fall of the Roman Empire. At the start of the film, Marcus Aurelius is emperor, Marcus Aurelius being played by Alec Guinness using exactly the same voice he did as Obi-Wan Kenobi, but with much better dialogue. Marcus Aurelius is on the northern edge of the empire uh, at a big outpost that the empire has on the near the river Danube. And he, with him is his main confidant, whose name is Timotides. He's played by James Mason. And James Mason gets some really nice little speeches in this and gets a couple of good moments as well. 
leading Caesar's armies in that battle against the northern barbarians is Livius, played by Stephen Boyd. Stephen Boyd, of course, you remember, played Masala in Ben-Hur opposite Charlton Heston. By the way, Charlton Heston was the first person they wanted to get to play Livius in the fall of the Roman Empire. But when he found out he'd be um, acting against or with Sophia Loren, he knocked it back because he and Sophia Loren had been in a movie called El Cid not too long before and they really didn't get on. So Heston didn't um, pick up the role and Stephen Boyd ultimately played it. Now, also on the scene are Caesar's daughter, played by Sophia Loren. Her name is... Lucilla and she's looks very much like a 1960s woman they really haven't gone to a lot of effort to make her look period appropriate um, and also on the scene of course is Commodus the son of uh, Marcus Aurelius we think played by a young Christopher Plummer and Commodus is the fly in the ointment he's the shit in the trifle He's really, um, he spends most of his time hanging out with gladiators, which may well be a subterranean way of saying that he's gay, and there's nothing in the movie that dissuades us from that opinion. Um, his main confidant is a guy called Ferulus, played by Anthony Quayle, who has a secret history with Commodus that Commodus doesn't know about until the end of the film. The leader of the Northern Barbarians is uh, Balamar, played by John Ireland, and one of the other courtiers on the northern border of the empire, along with Marcus Aurelius and the rest of them, is a blind man called Cleander, played by Mel Ferrer. We get a number of scenes with um, Marcus Aurelius, including a great... This movie has a lot of really big set scenes in it. And there's a great big one where all of the leaders of all of the nations that form up the Roman Empire with all their kings and proconsuls and things come ripping past a display area at this northern outpost which is a fairly substantial set it's an enormous piece of um set building and they all come in charging in on their chariots pausing in front of caesar who recognizes them and greets them along with a retinue of people on horseback and there are about 10 or 12 of them it's amazing how many horses and how much costuming goes into this one scene which is just basically introducing us to the scope of the roman empire all the way from britain to africa and all the way across to persia and armenia uh, and places like that it really is um quite awe-inspiring how much effort went into this movie. It cost $19 million, and it never made its money back. Um, I probably should talk a little bit about... I'll, I'll leave us with um, Marcus Aurelius on the northern borders and just talk a little bit about the making of the film, and then I'll come back to the plot. Uh, it was made by a guy called Samuel Bronston, who was actually from Bessarabia originally in the um, CIS what is the CIS these days? Now, Samuel Bronston made a bunch of epic films. He started out with King of Kings in 1961 with Geoffrey Hunter, a movie that was known in the trade as I Was a Teenage Jesus. He then made El Cid in 1961 with uh, Charlton Heston and then 55 Days in Peking in 63 with Charlton Heston. Fall of the Roman Empire 64, Circus World 64, a movie he made in South America in 66 called Savage Pampas, which I've seen, and it's about um, an obscure piece of, I think, Colombian or Bolivian history. I haven't seen it for a while, but it's a very weird little film. 
uh, and then a couple of other ones. Now, the fall of the Roman Empire, costing $19 million, is the one that bankrupted, basically, Samuel Bronston. It never made its money back. Uh, it was just on a scale unprecedented in movie history. And in fact, the standing set in this film for the Roman Forum is the largest standing st set ever built for a movie. It's 400 metres long and about 300 metres wide. And even though they do use some forced perspective bits and pieces on it it really is an enormous set when you see it in the movie which i recommend you do it's out on blu-ray here in australia very very cheaply um it's really is awesome particularly when it's filled with you know th literally thousands of extras the amount of extras they have here there's a battle of the five armies in this movie where the roman empire fights against um rebellious states within the roman empire and there are so many men on horseback in the in there with chariots and there are archers and there are um spearmen and all sorts of things it's just a, a they used a lot of um spanish army in fact to play some of the extras in this but still the scale of it is enormous the movie at the time was mocked and ridiculed it was really um not successful either critically or financially but it's been reevaluated since and it, it does have a lot going for it it's not a perfect film there are bits that run a little bit slow for modern tastes but um the first one of the first people i know who picked up on just how interesting this film was was martin scorsese who mentions it in his history of cinema and particularly um now going back to the plot for a little bit because it's um it's kind of important that i need that i do this right at this moment um, Marcus Aurelius dies I'm not going to do any spoils on how he dies and under what circumstances he dies but he dies and um, it's he actually wants Livius rather than his son Commodus to um, succeed him as emperor but he never makes that official and dies before there's an opportunity for him to declare in public that he wants Livius played by Stephen Boyd to rule the empire rather than Commodus now, Livius has heard from personally from Marcus Aurelius that he is to be the successor. But when the time comes and the funeral pyre is raised for uh, Marcus Aurelius, which is a beautiful scene, not only is there the beautiful set of the northern outpost, but it's really genuinely snowing. At the time, there's a snow flurry coming in, and it just adds to the... Um, the atmosphere of that particular scene at that time Livius hands the torch to light the funeral pyre to Commodus and therefore says that it's you know even though I know I should be emperor it was never made official therefore in order to keep the empire together and for cohesion I'm handing you the torch literally of being the emperor now one of the problems with this film uh, at the time of making was they had a bitterly cold winter in uh, 1963 in Spain and this is filmed in the mountains and so all of the actors and everybody else were freezing their asses off throughout those scenes played on that um, northern border of the empire and it does show it, it gives a certain grandeur and gloom to it now the bit that Scorsese mentions most about this film uh 
to make it interesting is that as Marcus Aurelius's funeral pyre is lit, a great moaning wind rises up around the mountains. And as Scorsese has said, it's like they're mourning the empire because Marcus Aurelius's last years, he'd been fighting for 17 years on the border, fighting the northern barbarians, and he was tired of war. He was really exhausted of it. He could see how it was bankrupting the empire and weakening it from within. And then again, this is only as it plays out in the movie. I don't know the historical accuracy of it. But um, Guinness's Marcus Aurelius is tired of that. And what he wants to do is bring everybody into the tent. He wants to welcome in the northern barbarians, in quotes, and make them a part of the Roman Empire and, and give them full citizenship. And rather than treating them as second-class human beings, to um, be more open and inclusive because he realises that an open society where you don't have us and them and where you don't have enemies on outside the borders but you expand the borders to include new friends is the way for the Roman Empire to thrive. This is not a popular view with Commodus played, you know, and Christopher Plummer, who's very young and athletic and um, smug and self-righteous, and possibly because he's been hanging around with gladiators, has a very simplistic viewpoint on conflicts. Decides that what he's going to do is go against everything his father was trying to build, the, the network and the empire of equals that he was trying to build. And starts acting draconianly and, and um, not only pissing off the citizens of Rome, um, and where starvation starts because of the economic uh, impost that he puts on them, but um, also the barbarians with whom Marcus Aurelius wanted to make a rapport are put offside and, and that of course causes its own ructions and also because of the drain made by um, Commodus's demands on the empire the uh, member states of the empire from Armenia and everywhere else start getting arcing up against the empire so all of this is going on in the background but this is a 1960s um, epic historical film so what it's all about is the grandeur of things. There are a couple of things that make this stand out for me um, as far as the grandeur is concerned. The enormous sets and the enormous amount of extras and uh, all the second unit stuff, which was directed by one of the great second unit guys and one of the great stuntmen of all time, Yakima Kanat. Now, I've actually got a copy of Kanat's book here. He wrote an autobiography, which is slightly technical. It's called Stuntman, the Autobiography of Yakima Kanat with a foreword by Charlton Heston and afterward by John Wayne. And he does talk a little bit about um, the fall of the Roman Empire and the stuff he did, because there is a chariot race in this, not unlike the one that Yakimakinat did um, eight years before for the movie Ben-Hur. But it is different, and the way it's different is this. Commodus and Livius have a chariot race down a mountain side and down a mountain road um, to argue a point about um, part of running the military. Um, Livius is still the head of the uh, Roman army and Commodus brings in a bunch of gladiators because he thinks they're going to show the soldiers how things go but a number of the gladiators kind of ran from the fight when things got uh, a little hard and Livius you know, following military law 
uh, stands them up on uh, a high cliff and one in every three of them gets chucked off the cliff. But these are Commodus's gladiator mates, so Commodus disagrees with him and they decide to have a chariot race down a mountainside. Now, this chariot race is fucking extreme. It really is. Um, there are the side wheels of one of the chariots goes off the cliff at times. And this is all done not with um, undercranking to speed things up, but all done uh, as a real chariot race. Now, Jakob Makanut knew how to do this. And the way he rigged the chariots so that one of them could be pushed by the other so that one lot of its wheels go off the edge of this uh, mountain road is he had the two chariots welded together and there were fake reins for the person whose chariot wheel was going to go off the edge while the other stuntman running the other chariot was actually running both lots of horses. It was the only way to make it work. And those things look fantastically good. And not only do we get them going down this treacherous mountain road at breakneck speed with these two chariots bashing into each other, but they go off-road and down the side of a mountain um, slope. And that is an impressive piece of stunt work. There's also a bit where one of the chariots is about to crash and the guy playing Stephen Boyd's character, Livius, jumps onto Commodus's chariot while they're kind of ripping down this hideous mountain road and it's just a, um, an amazing off the wall and, and gonzo kind of stunt piece which isn't really important to the overall plot of the film but is incredibly um, technically wonderful it's really there's nothing quite like it in any other movie that I know of uh, and so from that kind of action point of view the movie works really well at times even though it is very long it's well over two hours and there are bits of it that run slowly. When they get into the action scenes, it's quite impressive. Uh, there are a number of uh, action scenes in, you know, crowd scenes in the Roman Forum because you don't build a set 400 metres long to be used only once during a movie. You use it a number of times. Um, this, is, this is one of those movies, too, that's so long. It, uh, it, it follows all the rules of those biblical epics, the big, long ones that came out. Um, in between, say, 1950 and about the mid-1960s, there's a 15-year period of a lot of these films, where it starts with the overture music, and it's very long, and it has an intermission in the middle. And this movie does, has an intermission after the death of Marcus Aurelius, as Commodus takes over in Rome. And it's just before the intermission that we see the Roman Forum, and it, it really is such an impressive set. These days you wouldn't need to make it. You could do the backgrounds with CG and get the technical side of it, so you'd never have to build this stuff. So it's a it's an art form and uh, a way of doing this kind of cinema, which isn't coming back unless every computer in the world crashes. It is breathtakingly beautiful. And along with the outpost, it gives us a sense of the Roman world that a lot of other films don't, have because there's a reality to the having that long deep shot down the length of the forum and the enormous temples that are built without having matte paintings for the upper part of the temples there's a kind of solidity to them that really does give us a sense of the world there's also um, a really large temple of jupiter that's built i don't know whether the top part of it was a matte painting or not but if so it's a very very good one but it is long and broad and highly detailed. I mean, the, the production values in this film are fantastically good. There are also some great speeches in the Senate, which are um, marvellously well done. James Mason has one. A very old, fine Scottish character actor called Finlay Curry 
has one as well, as do um, Eric Porter, an English actor who appeared in a couple of Hammer films as well, but who's very good as one of the um, senators who is a yes man for Commodus, and as well as another guy called Douglas Wilmer, another English character actor, because they're theatrically trained British actors of a certain time, they do have that beautiful way of making speeches and they give a kind of weight to the arguments they're making about I mean about you know what where the Roman Empire should go and this is where the modern parallels are because I'm going to make a parallel here which is kind of you know a leap or it is a leap ahead but there are parallels between the current American election cycle and the fall of the Roman Empire, the movie, where they have uh, a wise king, a wise emperor, played by um, Alec Guinness, Marcus Aurelius, who par- has parallels w- with um, the diplomatic skills of Barack Obama. And then you have Donald Trump as Commodus, who has outrageous ideas that most of the people and all of the wise people of the empire know won't work but who has a lot of yes-men around him and people who are willing to jump on the bandwagon because it's a way to the big table. And so even though Trump is at the other end of the age range of Commodus, and Commodus the character is supposed to be 19, though Christopher Plummer was 33 when he played him, nonetheless, there are parallels with following um, a ruler who consolidates and builds and has a sense of a bigger picture with one who has random ideas that aren't reality-based. I mean, there are political parallels there, and it's not too far a reach to acknowledge them. When uh, a very large nation chooses unwisely of its leaders, then things can deteriorate very quickly. On a small scale in my little country of 25 million people, Similar things have happened, and similar things are happening at the moment. Um, though we don't have the same situation that uh, the Roman Empire or even the American Empire have. Our problem is that the people in the Senate are trying to rule the emperor. And literally, the people in our Senate are trying to rule the prime minister. The prime minister has a margin of one over the opposition in our current parliament. And there are 12 backbench, 12 minor party people so he needs the help of all of his people plus some of the others in who are un, um, not part of the two major parties to get legislation across and in the few months since the election it's not going well because when you've got that one party majority all you have to do is have one of your backbenchers get disgruntled or decide they're not following a particular piece of policy and that policy doesn't go through. Therefore, the government does do what that one person wants, even though they're a random, fat-assed moron from Queensland. And if you want that reference, look up George Christensen. But um, but yeah, I mean, it, there are political parallels with a lot of countries in this one. And one of the things that um, has caused recently people to reevaluate this movie is, for well, start, it was in Ultra Panavision, which is that really wide, really beautiful format that The Hateful Eight and It's a Mad, 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 Mad World were made in. So it's a, a magnificent looking film, but 
It's an intelligent film too. It takes the politics seriously. It's about the clash of ideas. There are some great speeches about the nature of democracy and the nature of inclusion rather than exclusion. And the the argument is made that there's a point at which war becomes self-defeating. And seeing enemies everywhere rather than people with whom you can negotiate and build alliances and build communities is ultimately the road to failure. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a very intelligent movie in a lot of ways. And it is politi- more politically complex than a lot of other historical epics. Now, this isn't a biblical epic. There's only one incredibly oblique reference to Christianity in the film, and blink and you'll miss it. This is a, a historical epic film, and I think it, it bodes well for that too. It gets rid of that kind of saccharine angel choir in the music kind of thing that a lot of um, biblical epics suffered from at the time. And it also allows for a more complex discussion about um, pol- secular politics in that sense. Even though people believe in the gods and uh, Commodus becomes a god at some stage and people pray to Jupiter and um, the other gods, there's still that kind of real politic which isn't deity-based and it's based on the practicalities of running an empire, the economics of it, being able to feed all of your people, uh, bringing in people from outside to assist your empire as well because um, some of the Germanic tribes are given land within the empire and actually thrive up to the point where Commodus chucks the shits at them. And they end up bringing food to Rome and contributing back to the empire in that way. So one of the arguments this movie makes is that immigration is a good thing because if you include the immigrants, they will work hard and they will enrich your community. Not a popular opinion or fact (laughs) for um, a lot of people in society, but nonetheless, the, the point is made in this film that that is a good thing and that leads to better things unless somebody in power decides that that's not what they're going to do. Now, because this movie was made in 1964, it was at the height of the American empire. Um, It's just after Kennedy died, Vietnam hadn't quite become the debacle that it was later to become. People still had that kind of optimism about um, American sovereignty and all of that kind of thing. But uh, this movie was saying that empires fall and that unless you carefully husband things, unless you do the diplomatic hard work, then things can go wrong. And um, that at the time didn't particularly play well. But nowadays, as we see the flaws in democracy and we see what happens when oligarchy starts to supersede democracy, then... The, the movie becomes more relevant and that's one of the reasons why people are now paying attention to this film more than they did in 1964. It's not perfect. Stephen Boyd and Sophia Loren are perhaps miscast in the film. I think Stephen Boyd's a good character actor. I've seen him do a number of things well. But I don't think that this kind of heroic thing actually helps. And the dialogue doesn't help either. One of the reasons why the speeches that people like Alec Guinness and James Mason made in this film was they rewrote them themselves because they could see that the um, the dialogue wasn't written particularly well and so they tweaked things and they 
made their own emphases and they kind of worked on them themselves in order to enhance the narrative and that works really well uh there are a number of great speeches in it, and i'm a big fan of movies that have good speeches in them as well i love the euphony of it i love the kind of poetry of building an argument and putting your point across in a movie in a way that's entertaining and over the top and theatrical and there's, there's just a wonder to that and it demonstrates without kind of overemphasizing it the skill of an actor the ability to say things in a certain way and to put your arguments across and to stay in character and to put you know make the complex entertaining and right at the end of the movie there's a great action scene as well uh there's a, a scene where commodus and livius decide to kind of decide the the future of the empire by having a javelin fight so a square is made out of soldier shields two shields high and inside that are a couple of tripods against which are leaning a bunch of javelins and livius and commodus fight with javelins and it's a pretty brutal fight too it's, it's quite nasty and um what problem is if you throw your javelin you've got to get to where one of the other javelins is what if then if the javelin misses the other guy is still has his javelin and can block you from getting to where the javelins are which is what happens in there there's a a strategy to this fight scene in this movie which is well thought out and very smart and um it doesn't favor the good guy at the start of the film at the start of the fight which is kind of cool uh it's it's a different it shows a, a different kind of fight scene and because people were going to compare it to things like Spartacus and Ben-Hur and things like that they had to find different ways of doing things they had to find a different kind of chariot race which they did they had to find a different kind of gladiatorial combat which they did in that javelin scene which um, does play very well and then right at the end of the film we see what's happening that's going to destroy over a period of centuries the Roman Empire it's made very clear and obvious to us in dialogue between some of the characters on exactly what is happening and what is happening at the end of this film as far as who will rule the Roman Empire is to an extent what is happening in the American Empire right now which is so fucking scary and cool at the same time that it gave me a fresh appreciation for the film I've seen it twice in the last year and even the first time I thought it was slow and the second time because I could kind of absorb it without paying the attention to what I didn't like about the film I found it a much better movie now the whole movie I think is on YouTube but as I said in Australia there's a cheap blu-ray of it which is very high quality and, and looks beautiful and I'm sure you can find it around there as well but uh, it's it's a kind of secondary historical epic of the time but I think it's one that's a lot smarter and a lot more interesting because of our current times and also because it ditches the theological baggage that too many of the movies set in this rough time period were weighed down with by Hollywood studios. So that's about it for this one. I'm going to take a break when I'm going to play you um, a piece of kind of tacky 1960s pop music based on um, the theme music from a movie. And when I get back, we're going to talk about a very different film set in the 1930s in the Tennessee Valley 
in America called Wild River, starring Montgomery Cliff, Lee Remick, Joe Van Fleet, Albert Salmi, and a bunch of others. Come with me, my love, and seize the day and live it, live it fully, live it fast. Never thinking once about tomorrow Till tomorrow's been and gone and passed We'll pour the wine and fill the cup of joy And drink it, drink as if it were the last Live, just live for life In Paris today, in Amsterdam tomorrow Sixty minutes through the skies Fly with me and see the setting summer sun And stay with me to see it rise And say to those who say to live this way Is mad that mad we'd rather be than wise Live, just live for life If you let me I will lead you Through the mystery and wonder Of a world you've never known And more Yesterday's a memory Gone for good forever And tomorrow is a guess What is real is what is here and now And here and now is all that we possess So take my hand We will take the moment If for just a moment's happiness Live Just live for life Come with me to where the hills are green and still and filled with flowers to adore. Come with me to where the laughter rings and thousands of pounding sounds of guns of war. Yes, come with me, my love, and live for life, and life will live for you forevermore. Live, just live for life. Just live for life. That was Jack Jones with uh, Live for Life, the theme from the French film Viva Por Viva. Um, yeah, I kind of like that version of it. It's got jumpy lyrics and it's the kind of stuff that I groove on at times. Now, let's get on to Wild River, directed and produced by Elia Kazan, uh, a very controversial film director in the sense that he was somebody who named names during the House Un-American Activities Committee. Um, there were they were names that unfortunately, but fortunately, unfortunately, depending on your viewpoint, the house already had. But the fact that he named names had him um, be a very controversial figure in the film industry for many, many decades after until his death in two thousand and three. Nonetheless, I've got a great fondness for uh, Kazan's work: uh, a streetcar named Desire, East of Eden. Uh, a Face in the Crowd, one of my very favourite movies, any number of other ones. Um, he was really the one of the guys who 
was the best of the best of what he did in America in the 1950s. And in 1960, he made a movie which almost everybody has now forgotten called Wild River. Now, there's a UK Blu-ray DVD combination pack version of this, which I picked up because I vaguely remembered seeing it a long, long time ago and forgotten the details. Many movies in between now and then, of course. But I rewatched it today, and it is mind-blowingly good. I'm incredibly lucky to have access to this film, and it has some strengths that awed me. Um, there are some things about this film that are really extraordinary. The cast is first rate. Um, Montgomery Clift in 1960, he'd had that bad car accident which ruined his face in about 1956 1957 while he was making a film called Rain Tree County with Elizabeth Taylor a film I like and I really have to try to find a DVD copy of that or a Blu-ray copy of course Um, and he had a number of other problems as well Montgomery Clift he was a deeply closeted gay actor which um, caused him immense emotional turmoil at the time when his career would be over were he outed uh, and he, he was one of those actors who lived for acting and his demons were of the self-destructive kind so um, very fine actor but unfortunately very very troubled uh, with him in the movie are two really strong female actors which is one of the reasons why I find this film so mesmerising the first is Joe Van Fleet who had started out on Broadway uh, just after World War II. She was in Lear. She did uh, A Winter's Tale and was very highly regarded in those. She won a Tony Award for a Horton Foot play in the early 1950s. And then Elia Kazan, whose French called him Gadge, brought her to Hollywood where she played the father of the James Dean character in... Kazan's adaptation of John Steinbeck's East of Eden. She was in a couple of other movies, like The Rose Tattoo, amongst others. Um, and she was also in Gunfight at the OK Corral in 1957, which is the link to the other film I've talked about in this podcast, The Fall of the Roman Empire, because Dmitry Tiomkin did the soundtrack to The Fall of the Roman Empire. He also did the soundtrack to Gunfight at the OK Corral. So there's the link between the two movies, or one of the thematic links between the two movies. So you can usually find those things with any Hollywood film. You can usually find little bits and pieces that link up somewhere along the line. The third strong character actor in this piece is Lee Remick. She got her start in cinema in A Face in the Crowd in 1957 that Kazan directed with Andy Griffith. I've talked about it on the podcast before. I've also talked about it on ABC local radio. And it's just one of those fantastic films about the nature of media. And uh, she plays the young wife of the Andy Griffith character in the film. And she made a couple of good films as well after that point. She was in The Long Hot Summer in 1958 and was nominated for a Golden Globe Award for Best Actress for her character of Laura Mannion in Anatomy of a Murder, which I'm going to have to do on a future podcast. And then in 1960, uh, she starred with Montgomery Clift and Joe Van Fleet in Wild River. 
So the story is quite simple for Wild River at its essence. Um, let me just see if I can find a decent um, brief pricey. Uh, a Tennessee Valley Authority bureaucrat comes to the river to do what none of his predecessors have been able to do. Evict a stubborn octogenarian from her island before the rising waters engulf her. Let's try this a different way. I've got a different um, IMDB story synopsis here. But, uh, let me just grab it. A young field administrator for the Tennessee Valley Authority comes to rural Tennessee to oversee the building of a dam on the Tennessee River. He encounters opposition from the local people, in particular a farmer who objects to his employment of black, local black labour. Much of the plot revolves around the eviction of an elderly woman from her home on an island in the river and the young man's love affair with that woman's widowed granddaughter. Now, Kazan starts the movie in a very interesting way and a way that allows the rest of the story to happen and for us to have sympathy for Chuck Glover, the TVA guy played by Montgomery Clift and for his point of view. The way that Kazan does that is the first thing we see on the screen at the start of the movie is documentary footage of a victim of the floods on the Tennessee River Valley in the early 1930s. It's quite confronting footage of a man being interviewed for a newsreel camera and talking about how his family got washed away by the floods and then how he only has a young daughter left. And you know, the man is obviously clearly in shock. He's, his whole life and his livelihood and his family have been destroyed. And that kind of moment of reality and moment of documentary in the film allows us to see that this work to dam the river and by damming it flood certain people's homes is very important work it's to stop destruction there are a couple of advantages to it first off it um, controls the floods on the Tennessee River uh, secondly it allows the production of hydroelectric power which then allows them to 
provide electricity to thousands and thousands of people who up until this time, you've got to remember this is about 1933, haven't had access to electricity and all the benefits that come from that access. On the other side of the argument is that the Garth family have lived in the town which is named Garthville and on Garth Island for many decades and that Ella Garth, the old lady played by Joe Van Fleet, has deep personal reasons for not wanting to move. She doesn't believe in Roosevelt's New Deal. She doesn't like the government interfering in her life. She's happy with the way things are. She's got a whole bunch of um, people of colour sharecropping on her property to help with the work. Her sons don't work. They do fuck all work, really, because they've got the sharecroppers to do it all. And, you know, it's the way it's been for generations and no, nobody, even the sharecroppers themselves at first, don't want this change to happen. Before the valley gets flooded, two things have to happen. All of the people have to be out and the Tennessee Valley Authority doesn't want any bad publicity so they don't want to use force to get them out. Secondly, uh, all the trees have to be cleared because they may end up flowing into the inflows of the dam and gumming up the hydroelectric work. So all the trees have to be destroyed below the level at which the flood is going to rise and permanently stay as that lake behind the dam. The other side of it is that that clearing work is behind schedule because the local authorities will only use white people labour to do the job. And Chuck decides that the only way to get this to happen on time, and he does run to a tight time schedule, is to permit black workers to work on the project and to do that by government mandate they have to be paid the same as a white man and this causes problems because the local um, cotton farmers are paying two dollars an hour or two dollars a day sorry for the um, local black people to do the work and the government is offering five dollars a day so that causes um, some tensions in the local community, let's say, which do end up in a certain level of violence, personified by a farmer played by Albert Salmi, who um, confronts and is violent towards this outsider who's come in and is disrupting their local community by his point of view. The other good, the, the other person who's involved in this is um, one of the local civic leaders played by an actor called Malcolm Atterbury who's facial recognised from any number of TV and cinema um, movies of the 1950s and 1960s, who comes in and politely advises Chuck of this disruption and that uh, $3 a day in the wages of the non-white workers will cause. So Chuck takes the pole ferry to the island and tries to speak to Ella Garth, um, again, as I said, played by Joe Van Fleet. Now, the interesting thing about this is Joe Van Fleet was 46 years old when she played this 80-year-old woman. She spent five hours a day in makeup, on location and in the studio. So it wasn't just in the studio. And she does a fantastic job of playing the old lady. Before he meets Ella Garth, Chuck she's senile and talks to her sons and says you know why are you going to let a senile old lady stop you from um you know getting the money that we're offering we're offering a fair amount of money for your property and uh before even meeting her he assumes that she's of diminished capacity one of her sons then throws him into the river 
when he actually meets her, he finds that she's sharp, intelligent, determined, and a very strong person. And and that's the interesting thing about this is, in a movie of 1960, same year, or around the same time, that froth-like pillow talk was coming out with all the gender stereotypes that um, come with that. We've got a movie here with two strong female characters, one of whom is an 80-year-old lady, and the other is a widow with uh, who married very, very young, who has two young children. And there's a, there's a romance between Chuck and Carol Garth Baldwin. And in the hands of somebody lesser than Kazan, it would have been a cliche, it would have been kind of meat cute and um or it would have been kind of overblown and kind of sentimental but the three involved Kazan Lee Remick and Monty Cliff don't play it like that um, at the start of the film well at the start of the relationship where Carol shows Chuck the house that she abandoned when her husband died which is above the waterline she tells him that there's a man in the town that's interested in her and whom she doesn't love. That man ends up being a friend and an ally of Chuck's, which is kind of interesting, the dynamic between the three of them. And Chuck says to her, as a general principle, if you don't love him, don't marry him. And they talk around, and the house has been deserted for a couple of years, so there are leaves on the beds, and there's a sense of disarray which kind of parallels Carol's life. She's put her life on hold. She tried going to college for a year to better herself, but just couldn't function, leaving her kids with her grandmother on the island, came back to the island and retreated from life. And that step of going back to the house, which she hasn't been in for two years, is her first step at re-engaging with life. And her and Chuck spend the night there. The way they talk around their relationship is really interesting because both of them know that the affair isn't going to last and that when Chuck's job is completed, he'll move on and she'll be left behind because um, they're different socioeconomically, they're very different people, their histories and upbringing are different. But as events unfold and as the violence in the community unfolds, we start to see something really, really interesting which wowed me and awed me. We see Carol find her own strength. She accepts the relationship for what it is, that it may well just be an affair, but she's got an aspiration for it to be more. She realises that the world she lives in isn't enough for her anymore. And she talks honestly about her feelings and her aspirations to Chuck, who's a, a kind of a very repressed person, and Monty Cliff being... Um, a guy whose career was just on that tipping point of a downslope plays Chuck's reluctance and vulnerability very well. Of course, it is Monty Cliff, and he's a very fine actor. Um, I'll just pause at that stage. So, Monty Cliff was an alcoholic, but for the duration of the making of this film with Kazan, he didn't drink. And it was a very difficult thing for him, for an alcoholic to stop drinking for any period of time, is a problem and two people helped him with that Joe Van Fleet and Lee Remick 
helped him through that. And one of the things that uh, Cliff did was he had very strong female friends because Elizabeth Taylor was a close friend of his, a number of others. And the two of them helped him through the making of this film. So there's a deep emotional connection between the actors in this film, even before the characters. And that relationship between Carol and Chuck has an emotional weight based on yeah that the relationship between the actors but also between the skill of the actors lee lee remick has said this is her favorite role of all of her films and of course she died very early at the age of 55 but and i could see that too because her carol is a person in in the film who has the biggest emotional arc in some ways She's retreated from life. She's hiding on this island in this ramshackled old house, um, raising her kids, but not doing anything more than that, really. And the necessary change of moving off the island and, and realising that the home she's retreated to is not there anymore allows her to step back to the house that is hers and to start engaging emotionally with other people for the first time since the death of her husband and she does fall in love with Chuck she sees there's a great line which is in the trailer that you know she sees you know all the flaws in him and she'll tell him when she sees them and the the marvelous thing about this is at no stage in the film does Carol come across as whiny needy or manipulative in telling Chuck that she wants to be with him and all she expects from him is honesty about himself and about their relationship. And if he's going to leave, he has to be honest about it now. For the time, that's a pretty kind of honor, tw- 21st century attitude in, in a lot of ways. She accepts their affair, and even though she feels guilty about it, she's enjoying She's enjoying feeling passion and feeling emotions and uh, connection with another person. And there are little subtle bits of business that kind of demonstrate that evolution and that kind of blossoming of carol well we first see her her hair's tied back with a piece of rag and lee remick plays the character for the most of the movie with absolutely no makeup or visible makeup of course you've got to have that kind of skin tone stuff but with no makeup and she does put on a little bit of lipstick and kind of eye stuff later in the film and we also see her with a ribbon in her hair rather than a rag and it's those little bits, subtle bits of that kind of thing. That um, and and she, of course, she dresses differently as well. You know, putting on her best clothes at times, and at times just putting on clothes to get the housework done because there's a lot of work, of course, needs to be done to the house to bring it back up to habitability. And um, Lee Remick actually chose the children to pay, play her children in the movie because she she went around to local kids and yeah, you know, there were local auditions for local kids. And she picked the girl child because she looked like a younger version of herself. And she picked the little boy because the little boy wouldn't let go of her and clung to her. And so even the kids in the movie, unexperienced as actors that they are, have a a kind of emotional connection to Lee Remick's character, which is kind of interesting because very often when they use non-professional children, there's a reluctance and a kind of emotional holding back because it's an unnatural circumstance for a kid to be in 
to pretend that somebody is their parent. But in this movie, it really works. The relationships between Carol and her kids work really well. And um, that's not something that was common in movies, and it isn't common in movies. Then we have Jovan Fleet's Ella Garth, who kind of has a reluctant respect for Chuck at the point when he gets drunk on moonshine and comes to the island and tries to talk with her and passes out. And that's the point at which she realises that this guy isn't a government. This guy is another human being. And even though they're totally at loggerheads ideologically, she is able to see the human being behind the facade of authority. And and that kind of works. And Jo Van Fleet is fantastic as Ella Garth. She's sharp as a tech, the character... She's, you know, resisting because she wants to die on her own land. And, um, of course, at the end of the film, she does die, but not on her own land. And this isn't a spoiler, because I don't care about spoilers. It's not the sort of movie that requires you to have spoiler warnings. Um, The ironic thing is, the only bit of the island, when the lake and the dam rise, that survives, is the gravesite on the island where the graves of the family are and so Ella Garth is able to be buried on her own land which survives as a little tiny island no larger than the area of a large house above the waters Um, so just to summarize this is a beautiful film I think the relationships really work between the people Um, it takes into account the nature of the politics and the racism ingrained in the t- this um, community and it, it has kind of political aspects to it as well um, does the government have the right for the greater good to move people off their land and clearly by law it does but as much as anything else the way in which the government wields that power is as important as the fact that it has it. And I think that's one of the points that this movie makes. The other big point this movie makes, which I find really heartening, is that it doesn't assume that because people live in the country and because people aren't educated, they're not intelligent. And it's actually a point made early in the movie. Somebody does say that. And this movie demonstrates that there are people who are very intelligent but very wrong. Uh, The town authorities who come and visit Chuck um, even the um, cotton plantation owner played by Albert Selmy is an intelligent man but he's brutal and vicious and protecting what he has and of course Ella Garth and even the um, sharecroppers one of the sharecroppers is of particular interest in this movie because he has a link to a movie that I hate and his name, uh, the character's name, I'll go with the character's name first, excuse me while I just flick through a bunch of crap here. Um, the computer I record this on is not the fastest of my computers, I'll be honest with you about that. All it does is record sound okay. Uh, let me just get this on. I, uh, here we go, his name is Sam Johnson, the character. And he's played by an actor called Robert Earl Jones who is the father of James Earl Jones. So this movie has, and he doesn't get a lot of dialogue, but he was a fine actor. Um, uh, yeah, so basically James Earl Jones' father is in this movie, 
playing one of the sharecroppers, which is kind of cool. And Robert Earl Jones is a link back to uh, the Roosevelt New Deal of the 1930s, because Robert Earl Jones was for a start of the early part of his life a sharecropper and also uh, a prize fighter for a time. And he's a link back to the Workers' Progress Administration, the WPA, which Roosevelt set up and um, worked with Langston Hughes on the stage and was um, in a number of plays as well. Unfortunately, like a lot of other people, um, Robert Earl Jones was blacklisted by the House on American Activities Committee in the 1950s. Uh, and uh, that, that kind of put a stop to his career for a period of time. This uh, film, Wild River, may well be the end of the blacklist for Robert Earl Jones. But, uh, yeah, just, as I said, just to wrap it up, this movie is strong. I don't know why it's not better known than it is. I think it tells an important part of American history. Not a large part, but an important part. And I think um, it's one of Lee Remick's best roles. Monty Cliff is fantastic. And Joe Van Fleet playing a woman 40 years older than she actually was, almost 40 years older than she actually was, is really good as Ella Garth. She really makes the character work. And um, I'm really glad I got this movie. It's one of the ones that I paid for, was paid for by the Patreon money. And I could only get a UK Blu-ray release. Fortunately, I've got a multi-zone DVD and Blu-ray play. If you don't have one, find one. Because it's going to give you access to a much wider range of movies. And, you know, put your pennies together. Get someone who loves you to buy it for your birthday or for Christmas. But definitely get um, a multi-zone player. They're worth it. And they allow you to access marvellous things like this movie. And as I might have said before on a podcast, the good thing about having discs of movies is on a streaming service, as they lose the rights, they can take it away from you. That's one part of the downside of streaming services. The other part is that if for some reason you're not able to continue to pay for that streaming service, all of those marvellous movies disappear from your life. And that's one of the reasons why I don't do Apple Music and why, I, though I do have Netflix and Stan, I don't rely on them for movies that have an importance for me. I like having a disc of them. I like having a permanent copy of them. I like the fact that it can't be taken away from me off a server somewhere on the other side of the planet. So find a copy of Wild River and watch it. So it's now time to knock, knock, knock that naughty clock that says it's time to go. Um, thank you for listening. I really enjoyed both of these movies. I think Wild River a little bit more than the other one. Uh, please let me know what you want me to do for the 200th episode of Paleo Cinema or the 100th episode of Martian Driving. They're coming up in November and I've got no fucking clue about what I'm going to do. And I would like the feedback on that. Um, so anyway, again, thank you for listening. Thank you to the Patreon subscribers for their ongoing support of the podcast. And as usual, the credits are in the style of movie credits. Thank you to the two Kerrys who aren't yet on the movie credit list. And any if anybody else uh, has been missed, drop me a line. I know I will fix it, I promise. Um, anyway, I've had a late night and it's now seven o'clock in the morning uh i was seeing my outlaws off on their trip to the uk at the airport so anyway um look after yourselves watch good movies watch bad movies watch any movies at all and be kind to people you don't have to be kind to 
I'll catch you guys later. Thank you to all of the Patreon subscribers. And here are the credits in the style of movie credits to acknowledge and thank all of them. We have Tom, our focus puller. Sarah, our special effects technician. Ian, our caterer. Grant, our Technicolor consultant. Claire, our script doctor. Gary, our prop master. Morris, our music director. Jan, our dialect coach. Armin, our key grip. Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler. Elaine, our scientific advisor. Julia, our casting director. Chris, our camera operator. Christopher, our gaffer. Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress. Tansy, the foley artist. Alyssa, the location scout. Mark, our second unit director. Paul, our special makeup effects director. Tammy, our donut wrangler. Tim, our New York unit director. Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor. Steve, our script doctor. Dylan, our goat wrangler. Eric, our set security lead. Carrie, our second script doctor. Richard, our set photographer. And our extras, Kathleen, Mark and David. And let's not forget Steve Sullivan, our director of Monster Effects, and Richard C., our transportation co-captain. So thank you very much to all the subscribers, and you too can subscribe at patreon.com slash paleocinema.